you're uh, joining us online, a pleasure to worship with you as well. If I haven't met any of you, uh, I'd love to meet you. My name is Pastor Mike Lotzer, and I'm the lead pastor here. And before we jump into uh, our sermon series, week four of Lessons from Lockdown, I just want to uh, honor uh, Pastor Ari and his wife Bree. Just celebrated their seventh year wedding anniversary. They've had three kids in those seven years. They are busy parents. So uh, would you just uh, give them a hand? Would you guys stand up real quick? Come on. Come on. Yeah. And so if, if you aren't too, uh, you know, a Norwegian or a Scandinavian, would you just reach your hand out as a symbol of gesture? We're going to pray over them real quick. Lord, we lift up Ari and Bree and their marriage and their three beautiful kids. Would you protect their family? Would you continue to show them how to make wonderful music together at home and at church and in the world? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We sure appreciate you both and the, the music you lead us in each week. All right, if you uh, would like to turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, if you're new, we've been in a sermon series called Lessons from Lockdown. The Apostle Paul was writing this little thank you note, a letter that we call the book of Philippians from jail. He was in chains. Every four hours, they would switch the guard, and they would chain him to what is called a praetorium guard. Uh, that was a special guard that uh, only guarded political prisoners. They were not very nice guards. And so he had a pretty rough life. And then he writes this letter that's chock full of happiness and joy and thanksgiving. And so the natural question is, Paul, are you doing okay? Should we take his temperature? Does he have a fever? Is he mentally ill? Why are you so happy? And he really tells us a great insight into the condition of non-circumstantial joy. He says that we really can experience a level of joy even when life is not going our way. And so in this series, we've looked at these lessons from lockdown, and we've taken little chunks of the letter. Uh, we're going to look today at chapter 2, 1 through 5. I'm reading from the NIV translation. My heading says, Imitating Christ's Humility. Paul writes this, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And I'm just going to read a little more for context. Who, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in a human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. You know, um, it's kind of an uncomfortable question to ask yourself, honestly, how humble am I? Like on a scale of not so humble, zero, very prideful, arrogant, self-advancing uh, to 10, 
Jesus Christ-like humility, self-forgetting, others-focusing, sacrificial love all day long, where do I, where do I fall? It's, it's an interesting question, right? Because sometimes it's actually easier to answer that scale with your spouse. Like, how humble is she? Or your boss, how humble is he? Or, or, or your kids, how humble or not humble are they? And maybe that's just part of the human uh, perspective because when we're looking at somebody else, it's just easier to kind of see when they have a little bit of spinach in their teeth than it is when we have a little bit of spinach in our teeth. But, but scripture really does ask us to do a self-examination and not just as individuals, but as a body of believers, as a local church, even as a, a, a larger movement of Christians. And the Apostle Paul is asking the church in Philippi, uh, modern-day Turkey, to do a little bit of an assessment. You see, they're under pressure from Rome. And if you, if you haven't been with us, the church in Philippi is made up primarily of combat veterans who uh, did well in the Roman military and were given plots of land and a pension and so they have a real struggle because they live in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, there is one allegiance that's above every other allegiance. That is Caesar. That is the emperor. That's who you worship even. And now you can have other little gods and there can be a lot of religious diversity, but get it straight. The emperor is where your first allegiance goes. And, and the, the kingdom of Rome is the highest allegiance one should have. And, and you know, as a military veteran, they're torn because, because they've put everything on the line. They've fought for the empire and they've been told that there should be their number one allegiance. But now as people who have been rocked by the good news about Jesus Christ, they're weighing this nuance of reality. They're, they're thinking to themselves, God became a human being and came to die for my sin, for our sin. And, and so this phrase is being proclaimed, Christ is Lord, as in even more than Rome and, and the emperor. And so they're living in this tension because if you're too public about that, if you say Christ is Lord and the emperor is not a big deal at all, they'll actually kill you because that sounds like you're, you're starting a revolution and Rome was really good at using their legions to put down revolutions that would try to overthrow the emperor. But life is oftentimes more subtle than that, isn't it? You see, there's another kind of pressure. And, and in the military, we call it psychological warfare. And that's kind of, if you're taking notes, the first thing to notice. They were undergoing not just the, the military pressure from Rome keeping order, but Paul was writing to people who were suffering under psychological and social warfare. And this was intended to divide the church and any other group. See, what would happen is if a group got a lot of unity going, and they were kind of doing their own thing in the Roman Empire, they would put psychological and social pressure on that group to say, hey, we want to make sure your allegiance is to us first. And if it's not, we're not going to kill you per se, but if we get a little suspicion that your, your allegiances are split, we're going to make it pretty difficult for you. People are going to look at your children differently. Your business might not flourish in the same way it did yesterday because we're going to put a little pressure economically on you because you're kind of not going with the program. Now, here's the deal, Rome would say to these groups. If you want to be a part of the safest, strongest, most successful empire that's ever existed in human history and get all the benefits, toe the party line. 
wave the Roman flag. If you want to do some other stuff on your time in private, that's fine. But, but get one thing clear. The emperor is Lord. This was the tension that the early church was facing. How public do we want to go with our faith? And, and, and what would happen oftentimes is when Rome would put this psychological and social pressure on a group of people, the, the group would, would splinter. One, one leader would stand up and say, let's be real quiet about our faith. And the other would be, let's be so bold about our faith that even if they kill us all, at least we're faithful. And then Rome would count on the fact that these two leaders and these two factions would not agree and it would solve itself because the, the unity of the, the subgroup would start to disintegrate. Have you ever been in a, a family system, maybe Thanksgiving dinner, where this happened? the psychological and social warfare of division started to take place. One person said, this is kind of how the world looks. And the other person said, I think it's more like this. And before you know it, even though the turkey isn't dry this year and it tastes delicious, there's no unity. There's no humility. There's no peace. And so Paul is writing in chains and he's saying, essentially, to people who are under the pressure of psychological and social warfare, warfare, there is one cure for that. It's humility that plays itself out in unity, united humility. It's unity and humility under fire. You might, you might say it like this, if you're taking notes, the second thing I might suggest is joy and unity exist when we share a humility-generating worldview. Joy and unity exist when we share a humility-generating worldview. Where am I getting that? Philippians 2, 2, we read that. Let me read it again for you. Paul says, then make my joy complete. And that's a Greek idiom, like a, a phrase that, that really translates pretty well into English. It means top me off. Like if you have coffee and you need a little more, just give me a top off. He, his, his cup was pretty full of joy, especially for being in prison. He's like, do you know what would be a good top off? If you guys did something for me. What is that thing, Paul? Be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and being of one mind. Essentially, the modern equivalent of all those little participles and phrases would be, have the same basic worldview. That would top my joy off. Speaking of beverages, if anyone's dehydrated, we have cold water on that green Adirondack chair in the back. That is free and uh, available for you. I will not be offended if you get up in the message and, and help yourself. So, he says, top me off. I'm really, I'm really joyful because I know where I'm going eternally. I've been faithful to the master and preaching the gospel in a hostile environment. I know that whether I live or die, as we talked about last week, Christ will be proclaimed and I will be with him eventually face to face. Relief is coming eventually, but top me off. My church plant full of veterans that I planted years ago that is having to make a difficult decision. Do we do we unite? Do we show humility to one another? Or do we divide? Are we ripped apart by the pressures of Rome? He says, top me off and share in the same basic worldview. And it's a worldview that generates humility. And before we answer the question, what kind of worldview would generate that? It is worth defining our terms. What is a good definition of humility? There are many. It, it's funny, sometimes I'll be preparing a sermon and then um, on Friday or Saturday night, we have family dinner and we're trying to be uh, parents that model spiritual conversations in front of our kids. And so our kids are nine, seven, and four. And th that's kind of an interesting 
age range and shot group to explain concept, abstract things. And so, so I said, do you guys know what humility is? And you know, it's the funniest thing. I could talk about Minecraft or Legos or video games or a Marvel movie, and with great enthusiasm and all their mental fervor, they'll lean in and answer any question I ask, and they ask me back four questions, and it's like a very sophisticated, passionate debate and dialogue, but I bring in the abstract concept of humility, and the heads go down, and it's like, oh, gosh, I can't believe I have a pastor for a dad. <laughs> Poor kids, pray for my kids. <laughs> and, and, and then there comes the moment when I realize with all my theological training, it's actually quite difficult to explain the abstract concept of humility to someone who is seven years old or four years old or even nine years old because it's something that's more caught than taught. It's, you see it in action in a person, but you never really parse out what is humility. And here's the best definition uh, I've found. It's from C.S. Lewis. He, get, he gets them all right, it seems like. He says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. That's kind of a doozy. Let me say that again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. And so, so it's not just going around being like, no, I'm no good at tennis. I did win, you know, Wimbledon five times, but I'm the worst. It's not thinking more of yourself, being all puffed up and, and really exaggerating your abilities, kind of faking it till you make it. It's not either of those. those are, that's, that would be insecurity and over-security. That would be two forms of pride. One is kind of tricky and inverted, and one is obvious. It's actually thinking of yourself less often. Now, that's a scary definition because social scientists say that we think about ourselves thousands of times a day. We reference I, I don't like this. This feels too hot. This feels too cold. This isn't, doesn't have enough salt on it. I don't like the way she looked at me. I don't like thinking about this. What if they think of this about me? What about this? I want to buy that. I want to eat that. I don't want to eat that. You know, we just think about ourselves all the time. Am I better than this person at this? Oh man, they're better than me at that. I wish I had that. I wish she had that. I wish. A lot of eyes, a lot of personal pronouns, a lot of me's. I mean, raise your hand if you don't relate to that, right? I almost trick, tricked you guys. We'll get the inside service on that one. No, humility is not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself. It's kind of a self-forgetfulness. And when you have the pleasure of being around somebody who is practiced in humility, because it's a virtue that takes practice, it's really incredible because they're very interested in you. And, and they listen to you in a way that somebody who is not self-forgetful or self-referential can listen to you. They're listening to you as you're like the most interesting person in the room. And they really want to know. Most of us, we're just not there. A man named Andrew Murray wrote a book called Humility many, many years ago. I highly recommend it if you'd ever like to read it. It's fairly short. And he goes so far as to say humility is not a virtue, it's the soil in which all other virtues can grow and actually take root. It's the root of all virtues. Just like pride is the root of all sin, it is us standing before our creator, acknowledging our position, saying, I am a, cre a creature, I was created, 
I had a beginning, I will have an end unless God wants to extend my ending. And because of that, I have no claim on telling God what God should do and telling everybody around me what they should do. The most appropriate posture, me being a creature, is to look to my creator and be faithful to the the design he gave me, the purposes he gives me, and that is loving him and loving other people. So if humility is kind of self-forgetful, not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often so you can serve God and serve others, what kind of worldview would generate that? You know, I mean, think about a worldview. A worldview is just kind of how you view things, right? It's, a, it's, it's an agreement on a basic set of questions and answers. Questions like this. How did we get here? How you define or answer that question, that will start to shape your worldview. Or who's in charge in this world? What are we supposed to be doing with the time that we have? How you answer that question basically will define your worldview. How about this? How do we navigate life when life gets hard? What are we supposed to do? Now, if your worldview is something like, oh, how did, how did we get here? We're just a random accident. And one day the sun will go out and everything we say or did won't come to nothing and nobody will remember anything. That's a worldview, but that is going to shape how you treat each other, what you do, the implications of your life. If, if the answer to the question, who's in charge, is nobody's in charge except for the strongest, the most clever, the most successful, the most wealthy, they're in charge. So I'm going to be the strongest, the most clever, the wealthiest person to dominate other people. If that's the answer to, that is a worldview and it will shape certain things and it will generate certain things, but it won't generate self-forgetfulness. How could it? You have to be thinking about yourself constantly because it's all about survival of the fittest, of taking from somebody else what you want. If you answer the question, how do we navigate pressure and persecution is something like we make sure that we have none of it. We just live a life of comfort and ease. That's going to be a certain worldview. But, but here's what Paul knows. Writing in prison, he knows there are certain answers to the questions. And, and this little church plant in Philippi agrees basically on the answers. And he's calling them to remember that. And he's banking on the fact, if you just remember the basics about our worldview, it's going to generate humility and unity. So what is that basic worldview? Well, the question, how did we get here? Paul knows that they know because he taught them. The answer is, it's a sin-broken world. And I've contributed to the brokenness. The world was not meant to be broken, but human beings, by our free will choice and demonic forces, we have broken it due to sin and self And that's why we find ourselves in a situation that is on the one hand full of beauty and on the other hand full of problems and chaos and hunger and famine and war. That's how we got here. Now, if you have that type of worldview, think about how that generates humility. Because you can look at all the beautiful things and thank God. You can look at all the terrible and ugly things and you have to take some responsibility in that. And you have to lament that it was lack of humility and it was lack of faithfulness. It was to some extent, not all extent, but to some extent, my own sin. Now, some of us, we have a hard time with that because we grew up in a pretty nice home and we're pretty nice people. And we think, you know, I have nothing to do with wars and famines and natural disasters and a sin-shattered world. 
I'm not saying that you're the primary cause. It's kind of like when I sit down with a couple in uh, couples counseling and one of the couple really believes that it's the other person's fault. And I don't just mean like their fault. I mean like 100% their fault. And so I draw a little circle pie graph and I say, would you just draw the piece of the pie that you probably have contributed to the problem? It could be minuscule. I literally had a woman once who was so mad at her husband and he was kind of a piece of work if I recall, but she, she got where I was going and she understood that it's probably arrogant and unrealistic for me to not draw anything on the paper. So rather than drawing a piece of the pie, she just drew a line to the center. Just one pencil line. So I don't know what that is, like 0.01% of the problem. And she said, I know part of the problem is I d agreed to marry him. Well, okay, that's a starting point. Whether you're a big, big piece of the pie or a minuscule part of the pie, you're still part of the problem and so am I. It's sin, it lives in us. That is part of the worldview and that will make us humble and self-forgetful. What about this question, who's in charge? Paul knows that although we live in a time that is hostile, and it's hostile especially to Christ followers, he knows this, Jesus is Lord, resurrection is real, and God is on his throne. And when all those things are true, if that's part of your basic worldview, first of all, it, it eases the panic that rises up when you watch the news. It allows you to get a letter from the Apostle Paul and, and understand very in-depth what type of precarious situation Paul is in. And rather than right away going to panic and dread, saying God is still on his throne. I have no idea from my vantage point in history how this will work out or be a blessing to people, but you can trust that God's going to do something as big as, I don't know, use Paul to write most of the New Testament, much of it in chains, so that thousands of years later, people would get together in lawn chairs and sunglasses and encourage one another and hear this message. From their vantage point, they never could have seen that, but they did choose, based on their worldview, to believe that God is sovereign. He will work all good in the end. He'll work all things for the good, for those who love him and fear him. So how do we get here? Sin. Who's in charge? God's still in charge. And what are we supposed to be doing? Paul really plays this out. He said, Top off my joy. Be like-minded. Have the same worldview. What is that worldview? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others. We're supposed to leave it all on the field for each other. And this is where the rubber meets the road. I mean, I had already written this message yesterday when... Uh, my little guy runs up and mom needs you for something downstairs and I'm outside and I'm sweaty and I'm working on something. And, and do you know what rumbled up in my heart? And it even kind of came out of my mouth. I said, well, why doesn't mom come upstairs if she needs me? What is that? Where does that come from? What I'm doing is more important. I don't even know what you're doing, but I'm outside and I'm sweaty. So clearly you should be showing deference to me. And I still have these scriptures bouncing around in my head. You know that part where it says preachers and teachers will be held to a higher standard? Everybody goes, what does that mean? Part of it is you're going to be absolutely miserable on planet Earth if you don't follow what you preach because it just bangs around in your head. And it occurred to me, 
I'm doing the very thing that Paul is saying, don't do. Don't put your interests above others. Consider them better than you. Does that mean you have to like pretend that people are taller than you when you're shorter than them or faster than you when, when you're actually faster than them? No, you don't have to like suspend reality. He's saying give people deference and make sure that their interests, at least in the body of Christ, are advanced even more than yours. Have you ever run into somebody where they almost have an irrational interest in advancing your interest? You paranoid types, that, those people scare you because you're, you're thinking the whole time, what do you want from me? Are you trying to put me in your debt? Why do you keep helping me and giving me stuff and serving me? You're approaching my problems with, the, with a greater creativity and energy than I approach my problems. And when this is done out of a Christ-like humility and love, it changes the world. It unites groups. And Paul is saying, top off my joy, live like that. Because it's part of our basic worldview. And lastly, how do we navigate persecution? Paul says this, together we practice practical wisdom that lifts up Jesus and advances the interests of others. Practical wisdom comes from this uh, Greek word that is translated in... Uh, what is that? Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit. He's saying that essentially, there's a tiny Greek word in here that says we're supposed to practice practical wisdom. Another word for that would be street smart. We're supposed to it's in verse three here. Uh, United in practical wisdom would be the most wooden way to translate that. So he's saying, we live under the occupation of Rome. You can't completely just shout from the, the, the mountaintops, um, Jesus is Lord down with Caesar. He said, I mean, you can, but you end up in prison like me. Functionally, you're going to have to live and you're going to have to decide if you are going to live faithful to the gospel and raise your children and go to work and contribute to human flourishing in a place that is constantly trying to tear you apart and divide you, that will take not only humility, unity, but practical wisdom. You need to be united in practical wisdom. Do you think our political system right now could use some unity in practical wisdom? Where people would say, you know what? It's not all about my agenda. I'm going to try to be humble, self-forgetting, and I'm going to try to look at the few things we can agree on and be practically devoted to that and be street smart about it and, and, and try to compromise and cooperate and get things done. Friends, God is calling you not just to humility, but the practical wisdom that can flow out of humility. When you are truly being humble, self-forgetful, not arrogant, not boastful, not demanding your way in a rigid way, it gives you the freedom to operate with a level of practical wisdom that the world needs, that solutions are born out of. You can say, what if, what if we did this instead of this? Nope, there's only two ways. Well, what if there's a third way? Well, I tried. There's, all, there's one third way, it didn't work. Well, what if there's another third way? Or another, or another, or another I don't preach about politics and I don't plan on doing it now, but, I, but I'm going to say something that might ruffle some of your feathers. And if it does, I want you to pay attention to that and do some business with God because it really shouldn't. 
I want you to picture voting and uh, you walk up into that little voting booth in an elementary school and those dear volunteers, like Terry, you're always voting volunteer, right? How many years in a row? 16 years, right about the time you stopped fighting for the freedom to vote, you got in the voting booth volunteer. So you're standing in front of somebody like Terry and you have to declare your party. And so it's pretty simple in our country. It's a D, a little D, am I a D? Or am I an R? Am I de a Democrat or a Republican? Or am I, am I an I? I want you to consider that for the follower of Christ, Paul's call to practical wisdom is an invitation to say, before you even think about filling those out, you need to first fill out, I'm a JC. That's my party. Jesus Christ, he's my master. He goes on in this text to say, why do we do all the stuff I just said that would top my joy off? Because Jesus did it. Why are we humble? Because Jesus is humble. Why are we practical? Because Jesus is practical. Why do we leave nothing on the field in service and love to others? Because Jesus left nothing on the field and he, he did the ultimate service and gave the ultimate love to you. And so you are a follower of Jesus before you're a Roman citizen. Get that straight. Now, some of us are like, oh man, did he just tell me not to vote on a partisan line? No, I didn't. I just simply said, as a preacher of the gospel, Christ is Lord. And if that offends you, here's what is probably going on. You're, you're so immersed in our cultural moment right now that you need to take a step back and say, we are not the first movement of Christ followers who have been almost torn apart by a by forces outside of the church that are asking us to choose sides and give allegiance first to Caesar and maybe second or third or fourth to Jesus. I'm not telling you who to vote for, but I am telling you who to be devoted to. Does Jesus have more devotion than your political opinions? It's worth asking. Does Jesus have more devotion than your commitment to your career? Does Jesus have more devotion in your life than your commitment to gaining wealth and securing comfort and renown and a good reputation? Does Jesus have more devotion to you, allegiance to you in your life than your desire to raise well-adjusted small human beings who become adults who, who actually move out someday? I'll be the first to admit I get my loves out of order and my devotions out of order. It's part of living in a sin-broken system. But Paul says, if you have the same basic worldview, and we do, it will, if you pursue it, generate humility. And when humility is generated, unity is the natural result. Friends, let's pray about this. And as we do, uh, I'd like to offer a special prayer for our, our nation right now, too. It, it, it could use it. And so I welcome you to intercede as well. So gracious God, we, we thank you for your word, this lesson from lockdown, unity and humility under fire. We need both. And we are under fire. We're navigating a global pandemic. We have unprecedented um, economic challenges. There's deep racial divides and political divisions. And, and there's a lot of people who, who are just worried and, and in a constant state of fatigue and panic. And into all of that, thank you that your word pierces through that malaise. And you, you say to us, just follow the example of the master. 
you remind us we, we have a basic worldview explaining who we are and what we're here for, how, how it got like this and where it's all going. And, and so help us to be devoted and fully aligned to you, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our Friend, our Redeemer. For the times we've gotten this dreadfully out of place and you've been an add-on to another cause, help us, forgive us, show us a better way. And Lord, I pray for Mercy Road. I ask, Lord, that we would be known as a church that is truly full of humble men and women who hold different views and can debate and differ at times, but, but are so united in love. United because each one of us were sinful enough that we needed you, Jesus, to die for us. And each one of us is loved so much that we don't have to perform to get your love. You've given it to us. Lord, we lastly pray for our nation. Only you have the wisdom to uh, see the whole picture. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would intercede on behalf of our nation, the United States of America, and our world, and ask for it what we would ask if we had your perfect perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.